everyone, and thank you for joining today's Master Instructor Roundtable. I'm Marty Miller here with my co-host, dear friend, Wendy Batts. Wendy, how are you doing today? I am great, Marty. How are you? Good, good, good. Looking forward to today's topic. I know that you put a lot of work into this one, and I know that you brought in a very special guest for us today. Yes, um, this topic actually came from our NASM Facebook page, and it was a very um, spirited discussion, if you will. And so we brought in one of our experts, um, Dr. Scott Cheatham will be joining us today, so we can bring Dr. Scott in. But Dr. Scott is a physical therapist, he's an athletic trainer, he's an NASM CPT, he's a professor, and he's also managing member of our scientific advisory board for NASM. So he is perfect for this particular topic because you kind of fill all the areas there, Dr. Scott. So thanks for joining us. Oh, you guys, thank you. This is one of my favorite podcasts I listen to on my way to work. So it's, it's awesome. Um, I love the topics you, uh, Marty and Wendy cover, and it's an honor to be on the, the cast today and I appreciate it. And thank you everybody for coming in and listening to a really important topic in, in scope of practice. So it's good. Yes. And guys, this is a live um, podcast that we have. So if you have any questions for Dr. Scott or Marty and myself, please be sure to put them in the chat because we want to make sure, especially with this topic, that we answer any questions that you have because we do have amazing minds on this one. So this is the time to reach out, especially if you're kind of on the board of what's gray and what's not. All right. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well said, Wendy. Well said. All right. So on the scope of practice, you know, what we're going to discuss is what is the role of a personal trainer? We need to know the terminology. The terminology, guys, I think is super important because the way that we talk about what we do and what we can and cannot do, I think, is extremely important. And unfortunately, sometimes we say things like we're going to prescribe something or we're doing manual therapy we need to be really careful because you need to be licensed to do that. Um, so we are going to discuss what's legal, especially when it comes to stretching and nutrition. And most importantly, we've got Dr. Scott here making sure we stay within our state laws. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. So let's get to it. All right. So Dr. Scott, from the very beginning, you know, I, anyone here that has uh, gone through the courses, we talk about scope of practice in each one of our certifications or advanced credentials, but sometimes still, there's still a little bit of a gray area. So can you just start kind of at the highest level and talk about scope of practice and code of conduct? Obviously we have some stuff written here that anyone that's watching right now can read into it, but can you maybe just give us that 50,000 foot overview as it pertains to fitness, especially scope of practice and code of conduct? Yeah. So, so in, in my humble opinion, scope of practice is really uh, what we can and cannot do if we're looking at that as far as professionals. Healthcare is a great example where if you're a physical therapist, if you're an athletic trainer, if you're an occupational therapist, if you're a chiropractor, um, we have what's called the scope of practice, which it's typically a written document within our state practice act, you know, our state laws that truly define what we can and cannot do. So for example, like in California, um, I'm a licensed physical therapist. I cannot prescribe medication. So it kind of, it kind of provides us with some kind of guide rails for us to stay in our lane. And so in the fitness industry, um, a lot of the certifying bodies out there, including NASM, we have what's called the code of conduct, which is a good listing of best practices within the industry. And I think that that's important to, to, to use that because that is, in a sense, a code of con you know, the code of conduct is a scope of practice. It truly describes what the role of a um, fitness professional is when they're working with the client or the, or with when they're working with multiple clients. Awesome. And, and Dr. Scott, you know, if we go to even to the next slide, it's like a continuation. You know, we've talked about the importance of the scope of practice and, and the different conducts, but I think it's interesting because sometimes, like you said, there's blurred lines and there's not, you know, a standard uh, necessarily that's clearly outlined. And so there's where we get some gray areas and without that specific legal, this is what you can and cannot do when we're talking about this, how, how should we address that as personal trainers? 
Yeah, that's a, again another great question. Is you know what would be you know the standard of best practices within the industry? We're talking fitness professionals across the United States. What would be the standard of care for that? And a lot of a lot of times, um, you know, if it's if it's in a legal sense. Um, a lot of attorneys or laws look at the standard of care. What is everyone doing? So, so currently, and I think everyone acknowledges this, is that we don't really have any licensure yet for fitness professionals across all 50 states. So that's where the code of conduct comes in. That's where best practices and the standard of care is going to be the the kind of the reference point or the gold standard among the industry. And so that's what we're really looking at is we're looking at a gold standard of what are common practices that fitness professionals are doing across the nation. Dr. Scott, I've got one question. You know, obviously we're going to go into the very specifics. We're taking things that are directly from our NASM material. But as an overarching view, if I was working with somebody or mentoring a personal trainer, do you think it's safe to say if you have not been certified in that or if it has not been something you've taken through your courses, that could kind of be your first line of defense of that maybe it would be out of your scope of practice? Yes. And I, I think I think that, that that's important to understand because in my experience in this realm, um, the, you know, the different states or the, the, you know, the different, the different situations do look at credentials as part of the standard of care. So that's why, for example, the NESM CPT has that NCCA accreditation, which is kind of the gold standard. It, it's, it's, a, it's a benchmark to say, okay, I'm a certified NCCA certified personal trainer. That's a standard of care. And then from there, I'm going to get other certifications, everything from maybe TRX to kettlebells to stretching, anything like that, that is going to be more credentials to show that you are qualified to do those 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 duties and stuff. So in my humble opinion, and some of the, you know, the the the, the cases that I've worked with as an expert, those are looked at, those, those best practices are looked at. And so, you know, we always, you know, I always tell my circle and my network of people is that, you know, you want to make sure that you're qualified before you actually work with a client on that. So that's what we look at. Very nice. And as Marty mentioned, this is actually information we pulled directly from NASM's CPT textbook. So if you want to take more time or if you're driving and just listening to us, it's really important for you to, to review the code of conduct that we have for personal trainers that's listed, especially through NASM as well in your text. So let's move on. <laughs> so Scott, what is the role of a personal trainer? Yeah. So when you look at the slide, there's a lot, isn't there? I mean, we can, I can, we could have a whole podcast on that, but I really think that if we look at like what Marty said, a big picture, look, you're really a coach for health and wellness. I mean, that's, that's what I believe is where the, the fitness professional does have an expanding scope since I started years ago. But ultimately I believe that the fitness professional is best suited to be a coach in health and wellness. And that, that includes lifestyle modification, everything from nutritional coaching to, to yes, anything from like stretching to wellness and also for, for, for fitness and sports training and corrective exercise. So I think we fall into a lot of what, um, you know, NASM believes in as an organization, but it's really from a coaching perspective, because uh, unless you're licensed as a healthcare professional, you can't really, you know, throw out those terms or diagnose things or treat an injury. That's the point is that there, there is some very educated fitness professionals that I know that are brilliant, but sometimes they, in my opinion, they go out of their scope saying, you know, labeling an injury or, you know, just because maybe they were injured before, you know, treating the injury. And so that's something to where you could fall below that standard of care and you can get yourself in trouble. So I, I think, I think our, our main role is a fitness professional or fitness and wellness professional is to really be a coach. And I think that's where we're, that's where we're best suited. 
No, that's, that's great information. And, you know, you did mention in passing that, you know, it sounds like you've been an expert in certain cases, you know, and going back to what I said originally, I always would talk to you like in a court of law, could you tell somebody that you've been highly trained on this technique? You know, so I'm sure that that's kind of what, what you're, you're speaking to, but also, you know, with the world, well, I'll, I'll take us back. Where would you say are the minimum requirements or what should personal trainers do to, you know, kind of check the bases, cover the bases. Is it the PARQ or how do you know as you're going through that medical history, where that gray line in and how to take that from a documentation standpoint or to ask those next questions and make sure that you have covered the bases as a fitness professional? Okay, great question. Um, uh, I think at least in my, my current practice, which I combine physical therapy with health and wellness and sports training, is that I think the intake is a huge part because besides getting clearance from the Park U, doing the HHQ and understanding their lifestyle and their work habits and everything else, you know, you're along those lines, you should be doing it at, at you know, concomitantly at the same time, you should be taking their blood pressure, their pulse rate, you know, even their oxygen saturation, whatever measurements you're doing. But during that, during that whole intake process, you should, in my humble opinion, even the fitness professional should be determining if that patient is, you know, if the patient is appropriate to continue with you with training or did some type of yellow or red medical flag get revealed that you have to refer them out. So, so, so it has to be a combination of written documentation because as everyone knows, if it's not written, it never happened. (laughs) That's, that's, that's a big thing that I've, I've ran into, especially with healthcare is we have to document things. So, so you have to check the documents, but then, but then along the way, you are focusing on client-centered care, which you're getting written um, written consent, as well as verbal consent. So the intake process, even though it may take maybe five or 10 minutes, it's a vital part of any assessment or reassessment that a fitness professional does because you're, you're screening them for safety. You're coming up with their SMART goals. You're determining that final question. Is it appropriate for them to continue with me? Or do I need to refer them out? And then from there, does the patient consent to the types of exercise, to the modes of interventions that I would like to do with them? And that's, that's part of that qualitative conversation that you have with the client. And if you're seeing them for an hour, it's got to be quick, right? You know, you got that, that 10 minutes, you know, you got to get in, but that could be something along the way as you're taking them through, let's say their movement analysis, the overhead squat, even in between, even in between movements, you can still continue to ask questions. So it should be an ongoing conversation where the personal trainer is consistently kind of checking to, to make sure all the boxes are checked off before they continue with that second session. So. Love it. So today on the Master Instructor Roundtable, myself, Wendy Batts is here with my co-host, Dr. Marty Miller, and we have a very special guest, Dr. Scott Cheatham joining us. And Dr. Cheatham is filling us with all kinds of information, just maintaining, keeping us within our scope of practice and helping us as personal trainers kind of know our role and feeling comfortable and confident when working with a client of what we can and cannot do within us being a certified personal trainer without any other certifications or, well, I shouldn't say certifications or specializations, but without any other licensure, if you will. So if we go to the next slide, I think this is probably one of the most important things that we wanted to discuss today, because again, we saw this on that NASM Facebook page and That's what kind of started the, I don't want to call it a heated conversation because it wasn't, I call it a spirited conversation, if you will, because I think it's, we've talked a lot, Marty and I've done a lot about marketing ourselves, but most importantly, Scott, can you talk us through the different terminology of saying that I am a stretch therapist, I am a certified personal training and therapist, I'm I'm a stretch this, or the word therapist, such as being a trainer or a coach. Can you kind of talk us through that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first I do have to comment. I really love the, you know, the NASM 
Facebook, you know, civil discourse that we do. And it's great that it's great that we have opening opinions. It's great that people are sharing and they feel safe because that's how we get better as a profession. And so we got to acknowledge that. And I want to thank all the NASM family for being open and talking. I've been on some spirited conversations too. And I learn a lot because I don't know everything. You guys, it's the same way. So I think as a family, we get together and we have civil discourse. You know, we're not judging. We love each other, but yeah, let's, let's spill the beans, man. Let's get out there and let's un unearth these great conversations. So I think that that is very positive and healthy. Now, knowing that though, that we have to kind of go back back to the, the different nomenclature or terms that are out there. And I think, I think in my humble opinion, it's pretty risky for somebody who's not licensed to start using terms like therapist, to start using terms like, you know, manipulation, mobilization, because those are all medical, medically related terms. And so, um, it, you know, it, here's a parallel kind of example. I think it's good for the NASM family. It's, 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 it's important because um, in physical therapy, in the world of physical therapy, we, you know, the, the graduating entry-level physical therapist has a doctorate in physical therapy. Well, we see more times than not when I'm consulting with all my network, we have a young doctor that's coming out, but they call themselves doctor and that confuses the patient with a medical doctor who referred them to that, right? So, so, so I think there has to be some type of respecting guidelines with that. Well, it, for fitness professionals going along those, those lines, if, if they don't have a license to be like a therapist or to be a healthcare professional, then I don't, I don't, I think, I think that they should stay away from those terms and use more of the fun things that people gravitate to. And that's being a coach, you know, that's, that's being, you know, being, being a fitness professional. Those, those things I think carry the same street credit, but it doesn't confuse the patient or the client, depends on what setting you're in, because we have that. Also too, it could put you in, in some cases, um, a, a risk of legal liability if the person believes that you are a licensed professional and you're not. So that's something that we always have to consider because you know, the patient or the patient or the client, whatever you're in, can simply come back and say, well, you called yourself a therapist, and you're like, no, 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 I didn't mean it that way. Well, you you did say that. So so I think it so I think best practices for the fitness industry is to use standard nomenclature or terms that makes it safe for our clients. Because to, you know, because if you're good at what you do, which the NASM family is excellent because of the NASM education, right? You know, we're amazing at what we do, then using the term coach or therapist shouldn't shouldn't influence your client because they're there they're there to see you as a professional they're there to take your knowledge and your energy so i would say flex your knowledge flex your energy as who you're representing and that's as a fitness professional a coach wellness so now that's great dr scott and i appreciate that and i think in the world of instagram and social media now i've seen even more of that and you know all three of us we've been doing corrective exercise uh, you know since it you know, before it was cool when we launched it in 2005. Right. But I've seen a lot of people now and I've checked their backgrounds. They are talking about preventing injuries. Their clients, their athletes never get hurt. Is there a liability there by them promoting those type of terminologies, especially if they are not a licensed physical therapist, athletic trainer, to me, it seems like they're kind of projecting that knowledge and then they're using those terminologies and claims. Yeah, that's, that's a good one because, um, yeah, that's a slippery slope. It's tough because injury prevention is one of those things that if you're kind of like a research nerd like me, you, when you dig into the research, it's, it's not always definitive on like, if you do core, you're going to prevent lower extremity injuries. It's not, it's not that straightforward. A lot of times injuries are multifactorial. So there's many causes that can, they can do that. So if a fitness professional is, is advertising that they're doing injury prevention, that might be something that could give them, give them in trouble because if they have a kid, let's say participating in, let's say the FIFA 11 plus, which is a soccer you know, kind of like an injury prevention and they're promoting it. Well, what if one of, one of their clients get hurt and say, well, you, you know, I got hurt, but you told me you gave me an injury prevention exercise. 
So, you, so we can see just by that example, you know, the FIFA 11 is a standard warmup and it's, it's documented in the research as a injury prevention, but that's the program itself. But if you're the professional and you're telling people that you're doing injury prevention and then they get injured on your watch, then that is, in my humble opinion, that's a correlation of a possible legal issue because then they say, well, wait a second, you told me that you were going to prevent my injuries. And then what do you say? You're like, oh, crap, you know, uh, 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 you know, so we have to we have to remember that, you know, you have to have a, a really good understanding of injury, what the research says, the evidence based side of injuries to be able to try to be an expert and do that. Because even myself, I've been a PT for 20 years and I specialize in sports medicine and orthopedics. I never say that. I never say to my ACL patients, oh, I'm doing injury prevention with you because what if they got injured and they say, well, Scott, you told me you were gonna prevent my injuries. So I might as well just mail in my license, right? <laughs> like I'm done, like I'm done, here you go. You know, and, you know so, so that's something just as Marty, just to kind of build on what you're saying is that that's a potential scenario to, scenario to consider. You know? so, so Dr. Scott, and if you guys have questions for us, please be sure to remember we are live today. So we if, please put them in the comments and we will be sure to get those questions answered. But to follow up on what you just said, if someone has, they're certified as a personal trainer and they've gone through our corrective exercise specialization, how should you market yourself then? Because obviously corrective exercise is a prevent preventative. And so on the marketing side, if I say that I'm a certified personal trainer, if I also say that I am a specialist in corrective exercise, because that's what they get, how do you work around what you just said in order to, to market yourself, but safely? Yeah. I mean, for, you know, it, it's, I think, you have a certification. And I think that that's important to understand is that you took a test, you demonstrated competency of that. Um, but if you're gonna market, in my humble opinion, you can market yourself as a fitness professional because that's, that's, your, that's your scope, that's your job that you do. You work at a big box gym, you work at a private studio, you have, you have your, own, your own business, that is your job description. Now, if you get a certification and you call yourself a corrective exercise specialist, in my opinion, you do have the credential, which shows that you are proficient at corrective exercise, but they, if you get in a situation, somebody could challenge you and ask, what makes you that specialist? And so I think it's, I think it's very context specific. Is that what you're kind of meant, um, yes. alluding to? Yeah. And I think, I think it's very context specific and not necessarily just because, you know, you have a credential that makes you a full specialist. It, it has to be, you know, you have to be able to, to practice and show other things on, you know, what we say on the clinical level or, or the professional practice level. So, so I think, I think telling people, oh, I'm a corrective exercise specialist um, is, is great. You could say, Hey, you know, I, my main job is being a fitness professional or a fitness coach or a wellness coach, but I also have certifications in corrective exercise and performance enhancements where, you know, I really enjoy working with athletes. So you could, you could spin it a little bit in a way to, to show that you do have the credentials, but, you know, not necessarily to give yourself that extra label unless you do have that specialty. And there's, and I do know people who are specialists of what they do. So I want to respect the NASM family and say, look, you know, if you do have the credentials, flex it. That's great. But just, just kind of be careful on your terminology, because again, the clients are there to connect with you. They're not there to li live by your titles. I mean, most of my clients, they call me uncle Scott. I don't go by all my credentials and stuff because they're there to get better. And my job is to help them return to their pre-injury status. So that's, that's kind of, I think that that's a broader question that each fitness professional should ask themselves is that, you know, what should I, what should I call myself, you know? No, that's great. I appreciate that. And for all of you joining us today on the Master Director Roundtable, we, myself, Marty Miller with Wendy Batts, we have a very special guest today, Dr. Scott Cheatham, who is an expert 
in many different areas, but he is definitely going through today's scope of practice as it pertains to fitness professionals and kind of giving us an idea of with the credentials we get, what can we do, but also how to now even uh, market ourselves so that way we set ourselves up for success and you know don't create a problem by accident, even by using the wrong terminology. So as we move forward, it's got some common professions and offerings, kind of like we like to call it the did you know, you'll see here a bunch of different people that work in and around the same industry, right? Like Dr. Scott, you're a physical therapist, but you also do more personal training or fitness and sports performance. So as you see this list here, is there anything that jumps out at you and or ways to speak to these different um, areas of expertise? Yeah. So when I'm looking at the list, I, I think it's important for, for everyone who's listening to it to kind of consider that each of those professions have specific language. Each, each has their own terms. So, so physical therapists, we use the term mobilization and we go from a grade one, which is a barely pushing on the joint to a grade five, which was considered a manipulation, but that's coined by chiropractors. So there's a crossover there. So, so we have to remember that each, each of the healthcare professions, which in my opinion, fitness professionals are part of healthcare. They're, they're part of the team. Um, they each have their unique language. So if, if, we, if we're dual credential, go for it. Do whatever you need to do within your license. But th if there's professionals who are using terms that cross over to others, you're going to cause confusion within your clients. And that's the problem. Or you're going to cause a beef with someone else and stuff. And so, you know, historically, in many states throughout the United States, there's been legal action between chiropractors and physical therapists over this turf war over nomenclature. So I think, so I think where the fitness professional right now is, you know, especially after the pandemic, um, fitness professionals are in such a great area because everybody is looking for wellness and they're looking for longevity. And I think that that's the new wave of the world. And so with that, I think fitness professionals are so needed right now that they don't really have to do much. They just have to kind of chill and let everyone come to them. And I think that's what we're seeing. So, so when I see a fitness professional using terms like, you know, manual therapy or using terms like, you know, physical therapy or therapist, I think that's going a little bit out of their scope because they're going to confuse the client. And that's where, that's where they can get themselves in legal trouble, in my humble opinion. In my humble opinion as well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, because you know, we're all we're learning, learning, right? Yeah, yeah. Scott, if we look at the next slide, here's where it starts to get a little hairy because this was actually the, the question that came up from some one of, one of our certified personal trainers on that page. And I think that because of the self-myofascial release comments, our stretch and flexibility coach courses that we have, and some of these different percussion devices that allow anybody to buy one, even your dad or mom or some random person that's never stepped into a gym to use it, it starts to become really confusing for the personal trainer. So can you go through and answer this question in your best opinion, especially being on our scientific board of can a personal trainer legally stretch someone? Yeah. So long answer, short answer. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Wait, can you repeat that? I, I need to write that. Yeah, yes. Yes. There we go. Um, yeah. I, you know, it, every, everything I've, with all my background and with me functioning as an expert for several legal cases that involve fitness professionals and kind of looking at everything, I, I did follow, you know, the, the spirited chat, as you said, um, it's, it was good. Um, yeah, I, I think coaches of all things, sports coaches, youth coaches, you know, parents, they all stretch each other, but it depends on the context of what you're doing. If you're stretching for health and wellness, I've never seen any language that say that a fitness professional or even a, a regular soccer coach can't stretch somebody. Now, if you're stretching for other, other reasons for like injury or rehabilitation, then you're out of your scope of practice. So, so I think, I think the answer is yes. I, I don't see, you know, I saw the spirited discussion, but I think we were getting away from that currently there is no legal language in all 50 states that d define what is legal for stretching and not stretching. 
So we have to go along what's called the standard of care. What is what is fitness professionals doing? Well, we see all these stretching businesses open up across the nation right now, right? All the stretching labs, all the stretching things. They call themselves a stretch coach. So the standard in the industry, in my opinion, at this point is that if a fitness professional chooses to do a hands-on wellness, health and wellness stretching technique with the client, they need to have best practices. First of all, they need to have verbal consent. Second of all, they need to explain what types of stretching that they're going to do. Is it active isolating? Is it static? Is it PNF? And also, too, they need to continue to communicate with the client during the stretch to get that feedback so that they're doing it in a safe fashion. So again, I think, I think that's where my personal beliefs lie and my professional opinion lies that yes, they can legally stretch somebody, but there is an asterisk. There's best practices that come with, come with hands-on with the client, even if you're a healthcare or a fitness professional. So Scott, I have a question based on what you just said and based on that communication, there was talk about, well, if I'm stretching someone, I'm manipulating that tissue and that's out of my scope. Okay, well, the again, the term manipulation is a, it comes from the manual therapy world where that was first, the term manipulation was created years ago, like hundreds of years ago with the doctor, with the doctor of osteopathy. It's actually an osteopathic term that started years ago. And the doctors of osteopathy were actually the first manipulators. And so when you talk about tissue manipulation or joint manipulation, that term has evolved from the old days. And remember the DOs spun off with a whole new branch of medicine called chiropractic. They split off. And then a lot of the physical therapists, occupational therapists, and newer chiropractors are following that osteopathic thought process of manual therapy. And that's more of a skilled, um, massaging, myofascial release. It's a manual thing where you manipulate the joints and you're, you know, you're doing these advanced manual therapy techniques to manipulate tissue. Just because you're lengthening a lengthening the myofascia and the sarcomeres doesn't mean that you're doing skilled manual manipulation. So, th so there are very clear in the evidence-based research, there is very clear demarcations on skilled manual therapy and things like self-myofascial rolling and or stretching. Can I just add one follow-up question on this? So if we're certified personal trainers, do we have more uh, role and responsibility if we are going to do manual stretching compared to your soccer coach? And what I mean by that is, let's say, you know, soccer coach, we expect them to do a movement assessment, understand what muscles short, what muscles lengthened, probably not. But let's say a personal trainer just starts to stretch someone's hamstring where God forbid, if they pulled it, you and I would say, well, did you do an assessment? Was that muscle short? Was it long? Did you know the normal range of motion of that joint? Are we held to a higher standard than your soccer coach? Yes, we are. Yeah, we are because we, we are considered healthcare professionals. So fitness professionals who are certified, you know, and they, they practice their scope of practice is working with clients every day. The court of law is going to look at them as a higher qualified individual than the AYSO sports coach. But my, but Marty, you brought up a good point. My point earlier is, is that everybody stretches everybody. It's part of health and fitness. It's part of wellness. So currently there's no specific language um, that has determined what stretching is for a fitness professional. And so the best legal reference we have to go for is what's called the standard of care. Now, if you are, you know, if, if I see a fitness professional stretching somebody and all of a sudden they're pushing on their ribs and they're doing manipulation, as far as I'm concerned, that mobilization manipulation is beyond their scope. So they fell below the standard of care because they're not just trying to lengthen a muscle because they found out that it was, you know, overactive and shortened or whatever. They're trying to inhibit it. We're looking at, you know, they're doing something that's a more skilled intervention 
that can get them in trouble. So, so, it, so it, it's really a, it's really about knowledge, right? It's really about people understanding. And I love the discussion online, but we always, we all have to remember too, before we throw out, you know, some, some strong thoughts, we want to make sure that we've done our homework, right? We want to make sure that we've educated ourselves on little things like these terms, like this nomenclature. So I don't know if anyone ever saw, thought about it, but manual therapy and manipulation started off with the doctors of osteopathy years ago. So it's a medical thing. So Scott, there's a question that came in and thank you guys for having these come in. If stretching a client after asking for permission, that client says he gets injured while you were stretching them, would the trainer be liable? Yes, that's, that's the, that's in my opinion. And there's, there's been two cases that I've, um, I've gave an expert opinion on that involved hands-on techniques. So of course, yes, any, any professional who does a hands-on technique, you have to remember that your, your, in my opinion, your liability is going to increase. Your liability is going to increase when you, when you work on somebody. So it's so important during your intake paperwork to maybe have a little statement that you're going to be, you know, maybe list out the interventions you're going to do with them. That's what I have. So in my intake, I list out, I'm going to do manual therapy. I'll do therapeutic exercise. We're going to do modalities like heat and ice. I list it out and they sign it. So then I know that I have written consent, but yeah, things do happen. Um, but Wendy, on a side note, it's important there, one of my, one of the insurance carriers that we've used for years, um, publishes data, you know, publishes data every single year on the incidence of legal cases in physical therapy. And one of the things they've reported year after year is the physical therapist or even the healthcare professional that has a good working relationship with their patients are less likely to have liability. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also important to bring up why they need to sign a waiver as well, because if someone's doing transverse lunge and they blow out their knee and you're the one that gave them that exercise, it could be, you never touch them, you're giving them an exercise, then you could also be liable because of what we do. I mean, we have to always be careful. It, it just was a bad movement. It just happened. However, it's in your building with you being the advisor, telling that person what to do. So that's also something to keep in mind. But before we go off of this one slide, Scott, because I know you are, this is your area of expertise. You have written a bunch of material for NASM. We've changed self-myofascial re release to self-myofascial technique, always keeping the word self in there. So when you see, because I still see it today, trainers pushing a foam roller on top of a client or trying to do the rolling for them because it's too, it's too hard for them to do that themselves. How do you respond to that? Yeah, that's, that's tough because, you know, there could be an argument that if you're doing that, you're actually using a tool, which, which would be considered like Graston and, you know, you're, you're pushing the tool, you're using a tool to actually manipulate tissue if you're doing that. So one of the, one of the safe things is, is to have the client roll on their own if they can, or if you're going to use like a massage stick, teach them how to do it themselves. So that's something that has, is kind of more that gray area in there, because, you know, when we're talking about stretching, you're really just kind of taking them up to that first barrier, you're stretching it. But when you're using it, an external hard object, there's, you can cause an injury, right? So if you're using, like I saw on the slide, the mechanical devices, or you're using a foam roller, you can injure the client if you're not, you know, if you're, if you're pushing too hard. There was a case where we had a patient who was on blood thinners and the physical therapist used a really hard roller and they caused um, severe bruising and bleeding throughout their whole leg because they didn't screen them properly. That was one of my expert things. And so that's a perfect example of why when it comes to rolling or using the mechanical percussion devices, it's probably best practice to teach them to do it on their, on their own. And it's, it just, it, it eliminates one extra headache for yourself. Give it to them as homework. You know, it's not, it, it doesn't encompass who we are, but you know, I think that the minute you start adding tools and stuff, it goes to a different level of liability and professionalism. You have to know what you're doing. Excellent. No, that's a great point, Dr. Scott. Thank you for that. So as we continue on, we look at the next slide here. 
you know, can you go over real quick and simple difference between a registered dietitian and nutritionist? Yeah. So registered dietitian, big picture, they are licensed professionals. They've gone through gazillion years of schooling. They're, they're licensed to, to, to really provide, you know, intensive behavior counseling. They can do um, diet, you know, nutritional prescriptions for people. So those are really the, the people who have the, the legal freedom to be able to, to prescribe diet plans and to, to offer extreme counseling and advice. When we talk about a, a fitness professional who uh, can call themselves a nutritionist, right? We can call themselves a nutritionist even though you're not licensed. You're really, in my humble opinion, you're a nutritional coach is where you're, re you're really looking big picture at you know, lifestyle behaviors. You're really looking at, you know, how are their eating habits? Maybe, you know, you can suggest, um, you know, you know, basics like coming from government, you know, when it comes to macronutrients, when it comes to, you know, um, hydration, protein intake, it's more big picture stuff that everyone is very common. But when it comes to working with an individual and designing a specific dietary program for them, that requires licensure and a different level of education. I know I stay away from that. I, 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 I stick my toe a little bit in nutrition, especially with post-surgical post patients. They, they need to increase their protein. They need to have a good diet so that they heal quickly. But I, I stay in my lane because I know I'm not qualified. So I have a registered dietitian in my network that after the first month of physical therapy, we send them to, we refer them to get, counseling and diet, um, you know, dietary um, prescription from the registered dietitian. So that's, that's in my humble opinion, where it, it is. One's a coach, nutritionist, the other one's a licensed professional. Very nice. So if we go to the next slide too, when we, we have to be careful with writing, meaning personal trainers, writing nutrition programs. And I see it, I hear it. Oh, I wrote a 12 week program for so-and-so because they want to drop this or gain this much muscle. How do you, how do you explain what's right and what's wrong? If there are no diabetes or any kind of health issues that we need to worry about. Yeah, that's, that's, that's high risk. That's high risk. Like, remember I said, slippery slope, that one's ice, right? Um, at least I know from California where I live, there's very clear language um, in the healthcare laws that talk about giving nutritional advice. If you're not a rich dietitian, you can't do it. It's against the law. Very clear. And I believe all 50 states have some type of language to say that you can't do that. And remember with, reg with registered dietitians, they, can work with the medical doctor, they get blood tests, they get urine analysis, they, uh, you know, they es establish calculations for the basal metabolic rate to the exercise, the resting metabolic rate, they go into much deeper um, assessments and metrics that a nutritionist doesn't have. So, so in my, you know, so for somebody to all of a sudden create this 12 week plan for somebody that they don't have any of the lab work or any, any of the, the medical knowledge of that person is really putting themselves at risk for litigation and stuff. And, um, you know, I've heard some stories out there over the last 20 years, we, we had one, one fitness professional gave a, um, when it was very popular Atkins, she gave an Atkins style diet to a patient who was actually type one diabetic. It did not work out well. And so this was, this was a gym in Southern California that um, I'm familiar with. And I was there and that person went into a diabetic coma because they cut their carbs too much. So, it, so that is a perfect example where I don't know if it ended up into a legal case, but I know that the person had to be, you know, rushed to the hospital and he was in the hospital for several weeks because of that. So again, you know, that's just another example that I've learned along the way that we really have to stay in our lane and, and, and really just give, you know, coaching advice. And I think, I think the, you know, the, the, um, the NASM, CNC and the CSNC are, are perfect. They give you, they give you behavior change things along with the wellness coaching. So if those of you who are listening are really looking into a more in-depth coaching strategies, 
please sign up for one of those certifications. They're fantastic. You know, I'm certified in both and I've learned so much from that. But again, we need to understand our scope of practice and what is our best practice. And that is to refer them and, and have a network where you cross refer to a registered dietitian in this area. I mean, that's, to me, that's a no brainer. It's like, you know, it's, it's, yeah. I'll stop. Because <laughs> 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 I can just go off and stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's a wonderful topic. You, you kind of already go over this. You know, we don't need to spend much time on this slide here because this is coming directly out of the NASM CPT. So just make sure that you've read this, right? What can fish, fitness professionals do? And then also, just as important, what can they not do? So I, you covered most of this. So we'll continue on, move to the next slide here. And, you know, talk about the best practices. You, you started on that at the very beginning. So maybe for those just joining us now, can you just maybe cover this slide again as we kind of see it, just to let people know exactly those best practices? Yeah, this is something that I, I, I um, thank you, Wendy, for allowing me to do this, um, put the slide in here where this is kind of what I do. This is what I was taught, um, even as a fitness professional, is that, you know, it really comes down to communication and connecting with your client. And I think if we start at the top and we go clockwise, we can see that if I'm going to be stretching or, or doing some type of mechanical device, let's say as a physical therapist, I'm going to explain to the client ahead of time what I'm going to do, right? And it takes, takes 30 seconds. Just, hey, I'm going to do that. Are you okay? if I do that, you know, and then hopefully if, if they, if they remember the list of the written interventions that I propose to do that they've signed it. So I have two, I have two confirmatory steps. I've explained it. They've gave me verbal consent. I also have written. And then from there, I may demonstrate the technique with them, especially with my post-surgical patients. You know, they're kind of scared. They're hurt. You know, I might show a little bit of a stretch. Okay. This is what we're going to do. Um, are you okay with that again? And yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And then you start stretching and then you check with them a little bit. So I think any fitness professional who chooses to do a hands-on stretching technique, just go light the first day, just go super gentle and light, go to that first barrier where the spindle kicks in that, you know, that stretch reflex and just hang out there and see how they feel. And then, okay, are you okay with this? And then build their confidence. And then they'll reinforce it by showing them some home stretches that they should do at home. And then on the next, session you add a couple more so it should be a stepwise progression where you're making them feel comfortable because ultimately we can argue over scope of practice but it's you working with your individual clients it's no one else yeah so but but best practices is staying within your scope doing the standard but also making your client feel comfortable with communication so Scott, there was another question that came in. It says, what about the app that some trainers use for giving their clients nutrition plans, supposedly done from or for diet or from dietitians is what I'm thinking that should be. I heard about it, but I didn't seem clear if that would be safe. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. There's a lot of telemedicine style stuff that's out there right now. It can be dangerous. Um, I think, um, I think too, in my paperwork, I do have a clause for telemedicine for physical therapy. I think the fitness professional, if they have an intake form, they could easily, you know, provide a list of, you know, we're going to do corrective exercise, you know, and list them out. We're going to do stretches on you. We're going to do strengthening, whatever you can list out, but you can also, you can also put a little paragraph on there saying, you know, um, possibly during our sessions, you know, the, the client will be, you know, referred to a nutritional app to explore ways of eating better. So th then that, that would be, and then if they sign that and you have that in your intake, you're at least disclosing what you're going to do with them from there, or you can also, you know, use their phone that's the thing. That's a secret too that I do is if I take any picture of a client or whatever, I use their phone. That's consent. I don't use my own phone because of HIPAA and stuff. And so I use their phone. And so then maybe, maybe the fitness professional says, hey, I got an app for you to explore. It's done by registered dietitians. I'm not going to be part of it. I have nothing part of it, but they do give nutritional advice. Why don't you look at it and decide if this will be good for you? If not, I do have a live, you know, registered dietitian in your area that I could refer you to. Other than that, though, I'm going to coach you on, you know, eating habits and not eating, you know, not going to in and out late at night. Actually, that sounds good right now. Um, <laughs> eat, you know, going to, you know, double, double right now, but, you know, like going late at night or something, sorry, you know, so going from there. 
No, it's excellent advice. Appreciate that. And I'm sure everyone here is uh, paying attention, is getting a lot out of this. So some key takeaways, I think, Dr. Scott, that you made it very evident is first and foremost, know your role as a personal trainer. Don't bypass that part in the textbook. Make sure you review it and maybe review it often. Discuss other professions within the industry. Make sure for certain you stay up to date with laws and scope of practice because they can change. And then train within your guidelines of your credentials. So Dr. Scott, before we uh, wish everyone a fond farewell that joined us today, is there any more like last uh, words of wisdom before we uh, move on? No, I just, I just think just in, you know, take home messages. I just hope everybody can, you know, just hopefully this talk stimulated ideas and I want everyone to have fun with their clients, connect with them. I want you guys to empower their lives and just, just do what you do best as a fitness professional. Don't try to make yourself more than what it is and, you know, love what you do, because if you love what you do, like I do or Wendy or Marty, you're going to impact and empower so many people around you that you, you're, you're going to be rich just in love. And hopefully monetarily, you know, you, you still got to pay the bills. Yeah, we still got to pay the bills. But I, I think that's the big thing from, for everybody. I think that's great advice. And Scott, we cannot thank you enough for being a part of today. Obviously, you have a very wide background in a bunch of these different professions we've discussed and helped us with a lot of the terminology that can easily be confusing and how we, you know, approach ourselves, our career, as well as deal with our clients and in our communication. But if any of you listening have any questions, you can always find me at wendy.bats at nasm.org, or you can find me on Instagram at wendy.bats13. And my information right here, dr.martymiller72 for Instagram, and then marty.miller at nasm.org for email. So Wendy, great topic today. I'm glad that you brought this one up and got Dr. Scott with us. And thank you so much for all of you that joined us. And without a doubt, we look forward to seeing you on next week's Master Instructor Roundtable.